1: Good afternoon, and welcome to the Sunday edition of The Best of Fight Back. More of what you want to hear from the week that was. Many political pundits are saying it was inevitable. It was just the timing that caught everyone off guard. Andrew Scheer made a surprise announcement in the House of Commons on Thursday that he will step down as conservative leader once a replacement is chosen. Joining Libby Snymer to discuss, strategists Karen Stintz and Michael Diamond.
2: It uh, was a slow bleed and uh, death by a thousand cuts, really. You know, I think with a decision like this, you have to analyze things really early and just make a decision. And uh, I definitely respect Andrew Scheer. I was of the opinion that uh, the election, there were many successes for the Conservative Party. He's obviously a difficult decision in doing what he thinks is best for himself and for the future of the party. But uh, it's one of those decisions you like to see made quickly. So better to happen today than in April for the party uh, at the uh, leadership review that was scheduled at the National convention, but uh, really one of those things that you just you, you need to make a decision on and move on. And we've seen that about six, seven weeks of uh, a slow bleed and attacks against them.
3: When he was commenting on it, saying that he had no intention of stepping down just about a week ago, he made a reference to the talking heads and and people in Toronto, uh, and those would be, I guess, uh, the more progressive ends of the party. Was it really? their move that got him out? Well, I think that the
2: the people he was referring to certainly helped start a conversation and uh, spread a conversation well beyond the quarters in Toronto that he was uh, suggesting that the conversation was confined to. Uh, there was obviously pressure from members across the country. I'm sure there were members of caucus from various parts of the uh, country. Uh, uh, we know, for example, Ed Fast, the member of Parliament, and Minister under Stephen Harper from... yes. Uh, publicly questioned the leadership of uh, Mr. Shearer, so it certainly wasn't confined to any one region of the party. I think there were certainly uh, areas of support for him throughout uh, throughout the country, but there was also areas of people who uh, would definitely think today was the right decision.
3: I'd like to bring in Karen Stints. What's your reaction to this? I, I'm a bit
4: surprised, to be honest, that um, I, I think that uh, you know that as the election results were reviewed, there was a sense that. Um, Andrew Scheer underperformed, but I also thought there was um, a sense that the Conservative Party needed stability more than it needed a leadership race. And um, I think that this could just attract the Conservatives from the job that they need to do, which is keeping the liberal to account.
3: So you think it is perhaps not a good thing, but, uh, you know, moving forward, do you think they need a different leader to make some gains in central Canada, here in Ontario, in Quebec, and the Maritimes?
4: Well, there's always that, you know, idea that there's a better candidate out there to lead the Conservatives and that someone's going to come in and save the day. And, you know, the Liberals fell into that trap with uh, Stefan Dion and Michael Ignatius and, and, and. and. You know, I I don't see that there's any savior on the horizon. I I think that, um, you know, certainly there's a lot of people that have expressed interest in running. There's been hopefuls that Peter McKay might jump back into the fray, but, you know, all the names that they're talking about actually don't hold seats in Parliament. And, again, to elect a leader for the party that doesn't have a seat uh, will severely limit the Conservatives' ability to do their job. And so I I think that this is a short-sighted measure. And um, I understand, I guess, why Andrew had to take the measure that he took, because he didn't have the support or felt he didn't have the support. Uh, But I I do think that the Conservatives could be making a strategic error here.
3: Uh, Michael, uh, what do you say to Karen's view? I think that uh,
2: having a leadership election during a minority parliament is certainly uh, risky and concerning, uh, and not without risk, as we discussed. Now, as for not having a seat, I actually don't think that's terribly concerning. It's going to be a perpetual campaign. So a leader who's from outside the House of Commons will be free to travel across the country and uh, move an agenda directly to voters. What happened in Ottawa is not all that important uh, in many cases. So certainly risk of uh, opening up the leadership right now. But uh, the, the lack of seat is a potential opportunity also. You know, it's uh, unprecedented. uh, In in, uh, it's not unprecedented for a conservative to kill their own leader, but uh, to happen in a time like this, very unprecedented. So I think you know, uh, those folks who uh, were dissatisfied with the last election should buy a membership in the Conservative Party and make sure that they have their say in electing a leader, because then they uh, then they're going to be more free to complain next time.
3: Karen Stintz, what would you like to leave us with on this? Though I'm sure we're going to be talking about it again sometime soon. (laughs) Well.
4: You know, We'll see what the Conservatives come up with in terms of a leadership convention, and, and you know, hopefully it's short and not too messy, and that they can get back to the business of holding Liberals to account. And I, I can't see the Liberals calling a general election and taking advantage of the Conservatives' leadership race, because that, that would be, I think, very self-destructive. So I, I don't think that's going to happen, um, but I, I do think the Conservatives are at risk of distracting themselves from the real work they need to do.
1: Karen Stintz, former Toronto City Councillor and now CEO of Variety Village, and Michael Diamond of Upstream Strategy Group. You're listening to The Best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. We've been hearing it in the headlines for a while now. Vaping is causing some serious health concerns. Earlier this year, a 17 year old boy ended up in hospital for 47 days after smoking e cigarettes for just five months. He was put on life support and almost required a double lung transplant. Before that frightening episode, he was in perfect health. A total of 13 vaping-associated lung illnesses have been reported in Canada. U.S. health experts have reported at least 48 deaths and more than 2,000 hospitalizations. The Toronto Board of Health is supporting tighter rules around vaping, calling for the provincial and federal governments to take action to curb its use especially among youth. Libby was joined by respirologist Dr. Teresa Martineau, one of the six physicians who managed the care of the teenager just mentioned, and co-author of an article about the case in the Canadian Medical Association Journal.
5: This was a wake-up call to, to many of us, at least the physicians that took care of this case, uh, where we saw firsthand how um, vaping can really cause this acute illness that we haven't seen with other tobacco uh, products in the past. And uh, This uh, gen- gentleman, as you said, went really from being a completely healthy 17-year-old to being at the brink of death within um,
3: a few months. We know that smoking kills, but it usually takes, you know, 30, 40 years. Exactly. And I think that's what we were uh, expecting to see somewhat with vaping as well. And
5: these acute illnesses are not a huge surprise given the chemicals that are contained in them. But still, I think the, the um, magnitude of this has been uh, sobering.
3: You were smoking cigarettes. You, I guess, had an inkling of how much you were smoking. Do these young people, do they know how much they are ingesting? Yeah, I think that's one of the problems. It's a very accessible product that uh, people can
5: uh, vape essentially continuously. You know, what I've heard from um, um, teenagers and such is that they sometimes consume this continuously continuously. throughout the day and probably the the ingestion over time is actually higher than from cigarettes where especially nowadays you have to exit the building and there are greater regulations around uh, um, uh, continuously consuming them. So probably the dose may be related to it but uh, also the the product um chemicals are different between vaping and cigarettes because in the vaping products it's an aerosolized liquid that contains different substances, some of which are actually known toxicants to the lungs.
3: It's the flavoring because that's that's what, you know, gets these kids hooked and and um kind of uh gets them interested in these Products. I mean, originally, this was touted as something that would help people who had trouble quitting smoking, which I would assume meant mostly adults. And clearly, the industry has aimed this at children.
5: That's been especially alarming, um, given the flavoring agents that we have been hearing about. You know, the the young man, again, that I took care of was consuming uh, flavored uh, vapes that had uh, brands such as Dew Mountain Green apple, cotton candy, those are just, they seem to be targeted at children and young people. So that's that's concerning.
3: Was there any issue that these were counterfeit? They were, They were. you know, from China or something? I remember hearing something about that.
5: There was no evidence of that. He was buying um, over-the-counter cartridges uh, through online retailers and, and, and uh, shops. So we, we didn't have any evidence of that.
3: Is there any difference between vaping, you know, this, the regular e-cigarettes and people vaping cannabis? I'm not an expert in the, the
5: manufacturing of these substances exactly. However, um, the way that these cartridges come is that you can buy the uh, the flavoring agent separately and mix them with either nicotine or THC in some settings. Um, and this gentleman was buying... Um, flavored cartridges and also uh, mixing it with THC to some extent, not all the time. And uh, the reports, uh, you know, that the U.S. experience has been larger. And from what we know, many of about 80 percent of the uh, vaping related lung diseases were in people who were consuming THC as part of their vaping products.
3: Okay, and is it only related to this uh, flavored stuff, or if if you vape it without flavorings, it, 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 does that work out better?
5: Yeah, not all the not all the vaping products that were associated with lung diseases had flavored substances added to them. Um, I think so. The the important issue here is that. The number of different lung diseases that have been seen in the context of vaping are numerous. There are at least 18 to 20 different types of lung diseases that we have seen in the context of vaping, which is likely related to the fact that they're due to multiple different substances in the vaping uh, products. The, and these include the flavoring agents, but also all the other things that are in there, including the vitamin E acetate that has been linked with a, It's a thickener used in THC. Um, there are other products such as formaldehyde, particles, heavy metals, and other substances that have been found in these uh, uh, vaping uh, cartridges. How quickly does it take these
3: kids to get addicted to
5: this? That's a good question. It uh, depends um, on exactly what they're using. Nicotine is very addictive. Some of these uh, vaping liquids contain very high amounts of, of nicotine. Um, it probably is on the order of weeks weeks to months. It um, depends on each person individually and all the consumption.
1: Respirologist Dr. Teresa Martineau on the dangers of vaping. I'm Jane Brown, and this is Zuma Radio's Best of Fight Back. It all started with Don Cherry's infamous You People rant, which led him to being fired from Hockey Night in Canada. Then Akeem Alou, a Nigerian-born NHL player, came out against former coach Bill Peters saying he used racial terms a decade earlier while Elu was playing for the AHL's Rockford Ice Hogs. Many other former players have come forward as well with stories of his unprofessional conduct, and he ultimately resigned. Then this past week, the coach of the Dallas Stars was fired with few details. Dozens of former players from the NHL, OHL, WHL, and minor leagues have also come forward with stories of abuse. Libby Snymer gathered a panel to discuss what she called a reckoning in the game that's been compared to the Me Too movement. Joining Fight Back, Matthew Young, founder of Personal Sport Record, and Wally Rigobon of Zoomer Radio's NAS and Wally Sports Hour.
6: You want to call it a reckoning? I, I guess you can say that. The society has, what's happening in general society is, of course, of course transferring itself to the coaching ranks. And I think that was inevitable. A lot of this discussion that we call reckoning. I, I'm not so sure that this is an epidemic in sports. Uh, certain individuals are being called to account. Uh, I just want to be careful about where this goes. There's no question certain behaviors are intolerable. They've always been intolerable. You know, t- to suggest that 30 years ago, certain of these things were Uh, may have been tolerated more than they are today. But what was wrong now, to a certain extent, if it was physical abuse, if it was mental abuse, it it was always wrong. I think we've come to the point we won't accept it anymore. And and that's a good thing. I I just want to be careful. I just want to make sure as we expose these things, we don't necessarily throw a lot of good people under the bus because there are a lot of good people out in the coaching ranks, both professional and in, the, in, and in, in, in minor, in minor uh, youth sports. Let's not forget about the contributions they make. Let's not lump it all together.
3: Well, yeah, that's, that's always a danger in any kind of situation like that. You know, the revolution eats itself. Let's bring Matthew Young in. What's your view of this? Did, does it? seem to you like the Me Too movement?
7: Yeah, I have to agree with a lot of the points that were just made. Uh, I I agree that you can't just uh, throw the baby out with the bathwater because there are a lot of people doing a lot of good things. Um, However, it is something that needs to be reckoned with. Um, You don't have to worry if you're doing a good job. Uh, It's the people that aren't doing a good job that need to be concerned uh, and or simply understand that there is a change in culture. There's a demand for it. So... They can make a choice. Either they're going to uh, try to educate themselves on what the new athlete and this new society um, will endure going forward, or is it time for me to go and do something else? And and I think that is a a good thing. It's a good thing for sport. Um, I think that it is um, um, systemic throughout the sports system. Uh, And somebody brought up a really good point. Um, In last week's conversation, you you know, it's it's one thing to be demanding; it's another thing to be demeaning, and and you can demand without demeaning. I think when we the the gray area always seems to be that verbal abuse because it's it's not deemed as harmful as the uh, or, or blatant as the physical or sexual abuse, but you know now our learning with neuroscience, with, with with, a lot of the conversations that are happening from former athletes, uh, we do know that it has an impact. We do know that it can be just as significant, if not more. So, you know, that's really the gray area, in, in my opinion, um, is the isolation, the harassment and the bullying. And it's interesting because they're all covered in our workplace uh, um, environments, but they don't extend to the sports sector. Sector, and I find that strange because you know if there's anyone we should be protecting, it, it should be our most vulnerable kids, and I think it's a really good opportunity just to just revisit that.
3: Matthew, what would you like to leave us with on this?
7: Yeah. Well, first of all, thanks for providing the platform for, for people to talk about it. I think that's the first step is the conversation. But then I think we really need to get into the the, the activation and accountability. We, we do a great job in Canada about putting out all the information and education on what is long-term athlete development, what is athlete you know, a pathway or in a coach development pathway, lots of good information and education, we fall short on the activation and accountability. What happens when uh, something goes sideways and how can we get to it and address it in an expedient
6: and fair manner?
3: Okay. And Wally, what would you like to leave I'd just us like with? i like to
6: say this is an important debate to the extent that it might change some way, some way, some behavior, some coaches. I think that's fantastic, but let's uh, let's be careful. Let's be measured. Let's not forget about all the good people who, either from a professional point of view or from an, uh, uh, an amateur point of view, uh, do a fantastic job. Let's uh, let's not forget about them.
1: Wally Rigabon of Zoomer Radio's NAS and Wally Sports Hour heard Sunday mornings at nine. Maybe you were listening earlier today. And Matthew Young, founder of Personal Sport Record. I'm Jane Brown, and this is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. Is it time to do away with the nickel? It's been seven years since Canada got rid of pennies, and now there's talk about dropping the five-cent piece from our currency. A poll was conducted recently by Vancouver-based Research Co. and found a slight majority of Canadians don't want to part with the five-cent coin just yet. Mario Canseco is the president of Research Co. and joined Libby to discuss. It's an
8: issue that has been uh, on my mind for a while uh, because, uh, you know, we've seen other countries that have looked into getting rid of specific coins because of inflation, because of the cost of making them. And I thought, you know, it's been a while since we've had the penny. I feel like asking Canadians whether they are happy with the fact that they don't have to carry them around. But also what I've been noticing lately is there are certain machines, uh, for instance, a a parking meter, soda machines. That no longer take nickels, so I thought, is that on the way? And if it is, how do Canadians feel about it?
3: People seem don't seem to be uh, exercised about the way we round up and round down when there is a, a penny on your, uh, you know, on your bill.
8: Yeah, it's an issue that is uh, definitely different when we're moving on from the penny to the nickel. When we ask Canadians if they're happy with the decision to take the penny out of circulation back in February 2013. agree with it, Uh, but when we ask them, should we get rid of the nickel now, Uh, there's 55% uh, who believe that we should keep the nickel. So it's quite interesting because there's other places that have moved uh, at a faster pace to get rid of the 5-cent coin. New Zealand is one of them. They got rid of their 1-cent coin and just a few years later said, we don't need the 5-cent coin either, so we're just going to take it away. Um, But in this case, you know what I see here is a situation where the younger generation, the one generation that has been more used to essentially paying for stuff with their smartphones, uh, with uh, debit cards, credit cards, Uh, they are more likely to say, I'm not using coins already, so if you take the five cent coin out of circulation, it's not going to bother me.
3: People who are between the ages of 18 and 30 are support, 41% support abandoning the nickel, but it's down to 39% for 35 to 54, and only 29% of those 55 and over want to get rid of those nickels.
8: If you're if you're 55 and over, you're definitely less likely to believe that the nickel uh, is something that should be uh, rid of. It, it's interesting because we, we do see a similar situation when it comes to the penny, but although not at the same level. We do see that there's a higher level of nostalgia, if you will, uh, for keeping the penny uh, from Canadians who are age 55 and over, but not by a lot. But when it comes to the nickel, there's definitely a situation here where there's a, a higher a uh, level of satisfaction, if you will, with the nickel being in circulation right now from those over the age of fifty five than those who are younger
3: perhaps they remember a time when you could buy something with a nickel <laughs> that is probably right and and it's a,
8: it's a it's a bit of a dilemma for the government because you know we really haven't seen a lot of movements that are asking uh whether we should get rid of the nickel. This is something that I was curious of and and I asked about it one of the problems that we had with the penny was that in, in its final stages, it was more expensive to mint them. You know, it costs more than one cent to make a penny. So the government said, this isn't working out. We're not using them for anything. Most machines won't take them. They're out of circulation. Now, we haven't seen the same situation happening in the United States, who also have a penny, uh, because there are so many lobby groups that don't want that to happen. There's fans of Abraham Lincoln, who is on the coin, fans of copper, um, they won't let this happen in the U.S., even though Canada has decided to
3: do so. And do you know how much it costs to produce those nickels? I think the nickel is still definitely lower than five cents. The, the final report that
8: I saw from the penny was that it cost roughly one point six cents to make a penny. So essentially, it was no longer viable. Uh, the nickel is not as expensive in that sense. I think it uses a different a, a materials than than the penny used to. Um, and again, you know, we really haven't seen anything from the federal government. Uh, that would lead us to believe that this is something that is in the cards. What what has happened in other countries is that inflation plays a role. And you have a situation where you need to get rid of of specific coins, even specific bills, because they no longer make sense. I mean, we saw the the, the situation that happened in Zimbabwe just a few years ago, where uh, a lot of money was essentially worthless after inflation was as high as it was.
3: What would you like to leave us with on this, Mario? Well, what I liked about this is that it does
8: bring a sense of nostalgia, and it does remind you of certain things that are uh, in your past. When it comes to to coins, uh, there's definitely a situation here where the younger generation is more likely to be using other means uh, instead of cash to actually pay for things. Uh, but this is one of the things that I like about the job that I have, which is asking Canadians questions. You know, you always have that generational divide. And those who have been here uh, the longest are more likely to be reticent of a future uh, that is going to have us not having coins. And it's definitely worth listening to what they have to say, even if you're a big fan of. Using your smartphone to pay for everything and anything.
1: Mario Canseco, President of Research Co. You're listening to the best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. Fight Back with Libby Snymer brings you comprehensive coverage of the news stories that interest you and your reaction to them on the phones. We've gone through the audio. Here are some of the best calls of this week. Bill in Toronto phoned about his take on former abuse in hockey.
9: I've been involved in coaching, uh, well, not for a long time, but I did about 15 years of it with my kids. You want to talk abuse, there's a lot of parents that, that deal out a lot of abuse to coaches, to referees, and to kids. I grew up in an era where I played hockey, and coaches would demean you in the dressing room after it. And you know what? That was all part of it. It was a different era. Why do we have to go back and focus on all the negatives instead of all the positives
0: that have come out of those generations? And now, Fight Back's Knockout Call of the Week. There were a lot of great
1: calls, but the winner of the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week comes from Darcy and Lindsay, who says it's good news that Andrew Shear has stepped down because the Conservative leader should embrace Canadian values.
9: I'm a longtime Conservative. And I've expressed my views to my local MP that I think it was time for Andrew to move on. He's a great, he's a nice man. He's got a great family. But his social conservative views that have never been clearly stated or denied over the years have just hurt us badly. He's not, he hasn't been a strong supporter of the LGBTQ community. He hasn't come out and said unequivocally that same-sex marriage would not be coming up as another issue, nor abortion. And these things just killed us in the last election, particularly in the urban areas. I mean, we did fine in the rural areas where we should, but no seats hardly. In the the major cities, Ottawa, Toronto, Montreal, it just doomed us. So I've I've stated unequivocally to the party that I will not support them financially any longer unless he's removed.
1: That does it for this week's Best to Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. If you'd like to qualify for the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week, phone us noon to one weekdays at 416-360-0740 on Zoomer Radio. AM 740 and 96.7 FM in downtown Toronto. Or if you have a comment, email us at zoomer.ca and follow us on Twitter at Fight Back Libby. I'm Jane Brown. Join me again next weekend when we'll round up the best of Fight Back.
0: The best of Fight Back is produced by Jane Brown, Justin Ecock, and Zeev Hadi, with technical production by Kelly Robotham, executive producer Moses Neimer. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one.